Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome or welcome back to Season 3 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. The Logical Christian Podcast is not here to tell you what to think. It's an exercise in how to think. Rather than just accept what we're being told with regard to current events, politics, science, religion, and everything else, we're going to stop the spin, ask questions, dive deep, and look at the world logically. And since logic is a gift from God, most importantly, we're going to look at it all as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. You've all seen it, either in a movie or on TV. It's a dark, rainy night, big city, someone being chased, someone doing the chasing. The apparent victim turns the corner, runs a short distance, only to find that it's a dead end. The run abruptly stops. The bad guy, and we know it's the bad guy because this is the person doing the chasing, who always seems to know which alleys go through and which ones are dead ends, turns the corner, runs a few steps, then slows to a walk. Shoes made with soles of apparently the hardest material on planet Earth clacking against the pavement, echoing through the narrow alleyway. Then the laugh, or the monologue, or what have you. This is where the cinematic adventure we're currently on reveals who the victim is. Is this victim a helpless individual, soon to be kidnapped, beaten, murdered? Or is this victim the reluctant hero, someone not to be trifled with, while simultaneously being someone who would prefer not to unleash his power nor his skill? This is where we find ourselves today in the United States and in the world as a whole. The difference is, we can clearly see that at the end of the path we're running down, there appears to be a dead end and that it's fast approaching, but there are still a few very obvious side streets we could turn down and get away if we choose to turn rather than continuing to run straight into a brick wall. So what to do? Will we continue to run straight? And if that's our conscious choice, at the end of the road, are we the victim cowering in the corner begging for our lives or the reluctant hero who turns, faces the criminal, cracks our neck and says, okay, let's do this. On today's episode, first we're going to do less with less, and then we're going to jump first and look later. Or if you prefer, we can measure once and cut twice. Then we're going to jump into a new segment and see what the Bible has to say about stuff. So, go check your credit score. You're going to need to know that soon enough. Then put on a blindfold and no peeking around the edges. And finally, prepare to write a strongly worded email decrying my heretical proclivities. Now, before you can give it any more thought, here we go. So I think you can agree that Bidenomics is probably the best thing that's ever happened to anyone or any country at any time anywhere in all of known history ever for all of time. That said... A CBS anchor, Tony DeCopel, and don't try to pretend you don't know who that is, that he's the co-host of CBS Mornings, he went out to a New Hampshire grocery store to tell people how good they have it right now. You know, with inflation going down and unemployment down and just billions of jobs being created. And for some reason, these mouth-breathing grocery store boobs didn't buy it. They had the audacity to tell him that as far as they were concerned, the economy was actually, I mean, and get this, bad. And all they were basing it on was little things, you know, like the price of food and the cost to fill their gas tank and the emptiness in their wallet and bank account, you know, small-minded things. Well, this took place in a smaller town of just over 20,000 people, Derry, New Hampshire. When you look at city data, you see that it's a town where the median age is about 38 years old, slightly younger than New Hampshire as a whole. 
The average household income is $76,000 a year, which is lower than New Hampshire's $88,500, but it's right at the U.S. average. The average house or condo value is $316,500. Oof. Which is less than New Hampshire's average, but I mean, you know, that seems like a pretty nice place. And they have a poverty rate of about 8.3%, about three points lower than the U.S. as a whole. So it's not like dairy is some, you know, poverty-stricken, backwoods, redneck, hicktown, jerkwaterberg. I mean, they're an average city filled with average people. Now, I'm not sure what your feeling is on the economy, nor am I familiar with your relationship with or to the economy, but it seems like things aren't going great, you know, just generally speaking. According to Forbes.com, a survey taken in December of 2023, those who responded seem to at least feel they identify with those outside the Dairy, New Hampshire grocery store more than with Mr. Ducopel, who seemed to be more of a leftist agenda-driven and generally clueless kind of guy. Now, this poll found that over 40% of respondents said that they have no money left over after covering bills, or as you and I would say it, they're living check to check. And this is based on just normal living expenses, not unexpected expenses or frivolous expenses. Of course, you have to define that. No shocker, but 77% of those living check to check said that they don't have enough savings to cover a single month's expenses. Now, that's not a month of income. That's just the expenses. 84% said that they're using credit cards sometimes, often, or always to cover expenses, which Forbes points out is about the same as the general population. That means that if you're in a room with nine or 10 other people, and you're not currently using your credit card for expenses, like a good Dave Ramsian, odds are everyone else in that room <clears throat> is. Now, that's kind of scary. I've been in some pretty hefty credit card debt in my past. That's not easy to get out of, and the stress it can create as you keep trying to dig out of the hole can be devastating. That means eight to nine people out of every ten that we're just wandering around in this world with are or could be stressed and preoccupied with credit card debts. Even more frightening is that 30% of the check-to-check respondents said that they're using buy-now-pay-later services to cover essentials like groceries and gas. That's apparently less than the average American, 46% of which said that they, quote, wouldn't be able to afford their current lifestyle without buy-now-pay-later options. Now, I'd want more info as to what they mean by current lifestyle, but the point remains that half of America is just kicking the can down the road, apparently. Back to America's savings, remember, 77% of the respondents living check to check didn't have enough savings to cover a month's worth of expenses. Now, it turns out that's the same across America, regardless of if they're living check to check or not. In fact, 3.6% said they have no savings. 27% said that they have under $1,000, 42% said that they have between $1,000 and $2,000, and 20% said that they have over $2,000. All that said, 9% of respondents and shockingly 14% of those living check-to-check still seem to find a way to spend money on some leisure, like entertainment, clothing, dining in or out, travel, etc., meaning that although they only have money to pay expenses... Well, just buy now and pay later, throw it on the card, whatever. <laughs> Can kick further down the road.
And of course, at the end of this article, they caution that if you still have bad money habits and bad credit, well, maybe credit cards aren't for you. But if you have bad credit, but you've turned your financial life around, well, maybe a good credit card is a way out. And then they give a link for the best credit cards for bad credit for 2024. Newsweek, in mid-January 2024, put out an article entitled, Americans Can No Longer Afford Their Cars. And wow, is that the truth. Now, they have to blame the pandemic, you know, not the so-called leadership that shut everything down when they absolutely didn't need to, and definitely for not as long as they did. But no, because of COVID, car prices have risen by about 30% since 2020. I mean, that's just an unheard of inflation rate, at least for us. Now, yes, the supply was very, very low, and in some cases still is and will be for likely years to come, but supply in itself doesn't drive prices. Scarcity can only exist if there is demand that's driving it, meaning people were still snapping them up without thinking about the cost. Not everyone, but come on, how many people really needed a brand new car, especially if they couldn't really afford it? There were literally waiting lists and quasi-bidding wars for cars that weren't on the lot or just arrived. Makes you wonder if this wasn't the whole, you know, COVID toilet paper thing on just a much grander scale. You know, that that fear that you'll never be able to get a new car again, so you better get one now, just at any cost. So in 2023, with inflation slowing, and we'll talk inflation shortly, the average price of a new car rose to $50,364, while the average price of a used car fell to $31,030. A used car with an average price of $31,000. Now, I bought my first car used for $300, in 1992. I bought my second used car in 1995 for $3,000, which would be like $6,000 today. Of course, the used car market was completely jacked up by design with Obama's Cash for Clunkers initiative, uh, giving people too much money for any used car so they could just, you know, take them and crush them. Well, so this article says that only 10% of new car listings are for vehicles under $30,000, and only 28% of used car listings are under $20,000. MarketWatch said in October that you're going to need an income of at least $100,000 a year in order to afford a car these days. That is if you only want to spend 10% of your monthly income on car-related expenses. That would equate to somewhere around $625 of your net income being spent on your car every month. And as we live check-to-check using plastic and payday loans and buy-now-pay-later in order to pay for expenses, plus a new car, plus some entertainment and travel, because come on, (laughs) we're not animals, Again, according to an article on Newsweek, bankruptcies surge among Gen X and Millennials. Well, this article is from late January 2024, so this is what's going on, you know, right now. So I start by pointing out that the latest data shows a 29% surge in consumer economic confidence since November 2023. That's good, right? But they admit that looking at what's currently happening, this confidence figure is its probably going to dip soon. And I would add in there, it's going to dip badly, really badly. Household debt, that's the debt that you and I have, if you or I have debt, it ticked up again in the third quarter of 2023 to another new record high of $17.29 trillion. That's over $103,000 for every household. 
Admittedly, the bulk of this, $12.14 trillion, is accounted for in mortgages, but another $1.08 trillion is credit card debt, $1.6 trillion is loans on those cars that we can't afford anymore, and tacked onto the mortgage debt, you've got home equity lines of credit, or HELOCs, that's $350 billion, and that still leaves over $2 trillion in debt that just wasn't listed in the chart that I found. Now, when you look at the graph of household debt since the end of 2003, the results are kind of striking. Our previous peak was at the end of 2008, which, if you remember, was termed the Great Recession and was the big bursting of the subprime mortgage bubble. By the middle of 2013, household debt had dropped to its lowest point at any point after 2008, still much higher than it had been in the past. But then it started moving back up at that point, and, well, it really hasn't looked back since. What's interesting is that the drivers aren't really credit cards. Those fluctuate kind of up and down a little bit. The HELOCs have dropped by quite a bit. It's mortgage and auto loans that have both increased a fair amount and an ever-increasing category of other, which is actually at this point larger than the car loans by far at this point. So with all this debt, with increasing inflationary pressure, and yes, we're coming to that soon, with the refusal to give up at least some of the lifestyle with too expensive cars, Newsweek said that Legal Shield is reporting a 24.7% increase for Gen X and 40.1% increase for millennials looking for bankruptcy assistance in their year-over-year data. This encompasses those between 27 and 59 years old. You know, your peak money-earning years, years where you can work your tail off because you have the energy, then you can work your brain off because you have the experience. Now, you'll always have people in this age group that, you know, try things, right? They start a business or make investments or do something stupid, and they seek out bankruptcy to help fix the problems that they've created. But for the most part, this age range shouldn't be looking to file bankruptcy. Now, the CEO of Legal Shield, and I want to be very careful here with the name, uh, it's Warren <clears throat> Schlichting, uh, said that this reveals a, quote, concerning rise in consumer debt struggles from bankruptcies to car repossessions. Now, added to all of this economic pressure, we find the New York Post from mid-January of 2024 also with a headline of layoffs surged 98% in 2023 and it could get worse this year, colon report. <laughs> okay, well, now I know that Biden has created like, I don't know, quote, over a billion, 300 million, trillion, 300 million jobs or something like that in his time as the potato in chief. But most of those jobs are either recovered jobs from, again, the COVID or their low wage, low skill or part time jobs that are being snapped up as second jobs by people. And in 2023, companies announced 721,677 job cuts, uh, a slight uptick from the 363,832 that were announced in 2022. And companies aren't seeing any relief in 2024. I can tell you that from a person who works a white-collar job in a fairly large company in a fairly important industry, we're in the process of cutting about 6.6% of our workforce globally, and that's through attrition, retirements, and layoffs. And most of us at this place have resigned ourselves to the almost definite fact that 2024 will see neither raises nor bonuses. And look, I get it. 
Okay. And to the credit of the leadership team, the big boys and girls, they all stopped their raises and I believe all their bonuses in 2023. And each of them actually took a 25% pay cut. Now I know they can likely afford it without any severe pain, but that's still pretty substantial. And I, for one, appreciate the skin that they put in the game. So this article says that the technology industry saw the bulk of the cuts. That had a 73% increase in layoffs at about 168,032 people, which is just a few people shy of the record that was set in 2001, if you remember that. At least we're ramping up humanoid robots and AI. I mean, that should, um, well, I mean, help isn't the word I'm searching for. Anyway, retail saw the largest increase in 2023, a 274% increase to be exact, and that was cutting nearly 79,000 people. And then healthcare, both the product manufacturing and hospitals cut 58,560 people in 2023, which was a 91% increase from 2022. Now look, I know that the published unemployment rate is sitting around, what, 3.5, 3.6, 3.7%, something like that. But if you've never looked at the alternate data on shadowstats.com, I'd encourage you to take a gander. See, the number that's reported by President Vegetable and his Marxist horde of merry trans men is a very carefully refined number that looks at very small slices of real unemployment. Looking at the broadest measure from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which includes short-term discouraged workers, marginally attached workers, and those working part-time because they can't find full-time employment even though they want to, we find the unemployment number adds another 3% to make it about 6.7%. But that's actually still not the full story. See, the government doesn't count those that are considered long-term discouraged workers. These are people that have basically just given up trying to find a job. In other words, they've dropped out of the workforce. They're living on welfare and have no plans to rejoin. In 1994, that number was removed from the unemployment figures that they were reporting. Now, it's funny, I mean, not like a clown, but more funny, curious, how when test scores slide or statistics start trending the wrong way or something like that, we just recalculate every time. When you look at the history of data in this country, this happens over and over and over again. I mean, we're a country built on nothing but lies at this point. Anyway, digression has bit us again here. So when you add back in the long-term discouraged workers who are by definition also unemployed, the actual unemployment rate is 24.7%. Many of you shocked by that? You want to do inflation now? Yeah, you do. So a 30-second primer on inflation. When they say inflation is going down, they don't mean prices are going down. They mean prices are going up slower. So if we have a 10% annual inflation one year, that means that that thing you bought for $100 last year, well, now that costs you $110 this year. Now, say the next year has a 5% inflation. <laughs> Headline, inflation rate cut in half. All hail the great Biden. That means that the thing you paid $100 for a few years ago that cost you $110 last year, well, now it costs you $115.50. So when you calculate it, that means that due to the 10% and the 5% inflation over those two years, you're actually paying 15.5% more for that thing than you did two years ago. Inflation down, price still going up. 
So, if you look at the official number for inflation from 2000 up through 2020, the inflation ranged as an annual average from 3.8% to minus 0.4% in 2009, but when you look at it all, kind of average it out, it hung around, say, 2%. Then in 2021, the average hit 4.7%. Uh, 2022, we averaged 8%, with a peak in June of 9.1%. And 2023 saw it fall all the way back down to 4.1%, the third highest on record. <laughs> all three records being uh, hit on Biden's watch. Just saying. Back to our $100 example, let's start in 2017, Trump's first year, and walk our way to 2023, shall we? So if we paid $100 for something at the end of 2016, well, by the end of 2017, now we're paying $102.10. End of 2018, we're at $104.55. End of 2019, we've hit 106.43. End of 2020 and the end of Trump's term, we're now at 107.71. So at four years, we're sitting at an effective inflation rate of 7.7%. That's not great to be honest, but let's continue on, shall we? In 2021, Biden's first full year, we're now at 112.77. At the end of 2022, we're now at 121.79. And at the end of 2023, we've reached 126.79 for that thing that cost us $100 only seven years ago. That's a 26.8% effective inflation rate over seven years. And Biden had his own inflation rate of about 17.7% over his three years as compared to Trump's 7.7% over four years. Now look, yes, COVID did have an effect on this and we're seeing inflationary pressure the world over, but how much was or is COVID and how much is garbage fiscal policy? See, I'd argue it depends on the latter much more than the former. Now, we're being told that inflation pressure is easing, that it never really was that bad. You know, there were some interest rate hikes. We just kind of took care of the problem. But but you and I, we seem to feel more inflationary pressure than 4% or really even 17%, to be honest. Let's go back to shadow stats for a moment. Inflation is a funny number because it doesn't, nor has it ever included, you know, all things. The number is calculated based on very specific items only. And that basket of stuff that they used to calculate the number, well, that's changed over the years. So what Shadow Stats does is they go back and they put those things back in the basket. They calculate the current inflation rate as if it were calculated how it was done back in 1980, and then also how it was done back in 1990. So if it was calculated as it was back in 1990, our inflation rate right now wouldn't be sitting at 4%, it would be more like just under 8%. And the inflation rate for 2022 wouldn't have been 8%. It would have been more like 12%. But if you remember the days of Jimmy Carter, now the second worst overall president of all time, the late 1970s and early 1980s was basically fighting his absolute garbage fiscal policy. In 1980, the inflation rate was sitting at 15%. So if we calculated the inflation rate in the same way today, in 2023, our rate wouldn't be 4%, it would be about 12%. And 2022 wouldn't have been 8%, it would have been about 17%. Actually worse than the mess that Carter gave us, if you can believe it. And I guarantee that you can not only believe it, but you can feel it. 
Using those same 1980s figures, Trump wasn't much better, to be totally honest. He hovered around 9 to 10% for each year of his four-year term. So if we look at the same kind of example we just did with the reported numbers, but we do that with the shadow stat real inflation rates, I think you'll be pleasantly horrified. Over Trump's four years, that $100, that the thing you bought for 100 bucks at the end of his term would now cost you $146. That's a 46% effective inflation rate over four years. By the end of 2023, that thing you paid $100 for at the end of 2016, well, that's now going to cost you $217.12. A 117.2% effective inflation rate over seven years. And as Trump saw 46% over four years, Biden has seen 48.7% over three years. And that number's still climbing. By the end of his first, and hopefully and likely only term, he'll be well over 50%, probably close to 60% inflation in four years. Now, does it feel more like that to you when you go to the store or you pay your utilities? Yeah, it really does. Now, I'm guessing most of us haven't more than doubled our salary in the last seven years, <laughs> right? But all is well. We're just moving into a different era. In the United States and in the world as a whole, things are just changing. It's okay. And thankfully, we've got some very powerful, very humanitarian, loving groups that are just working hard to look out for us. In 2016, a video came out from the World Economic Forum quoting or summarizing, I guess, an essay written by Danish politician Ida Auken, which said that in the future, quote, you'll own nothing and be happy. Now, this wasn't stated as a threat. This was just a statement of fact, and it was actually meant to be comforting. How much stress and pressure would be taken off of you if you just rented and leased all your things and all that headache of ownership would be gone. That's someone else's problem now. You just use things and rent things, then leave or give the things back and, you know, no big whoop. Of course, some of us who happen to not like the stress of owning private property yet feel the ability to own my own property is important for a large number of reasons, well, we find that statement to be slightly less than comforting. But this is exactly where we're heading, according to a growing number of experts. And after all of the buildup and background that we just went through in this segment, should we really be shocked? I mean, not really. Should we be a tad horrified? Well, yeah, I'd say that some horrification is probably apt. Now, from mid-December, found on MoneyWise via finance.yahoo.com, headline, America will become a renter nation, colon, Grant Cardone warns the U.S. could see 100-year mortgages, says we might even rent our clothes. How to buy real estate without going deep into debt? Rented clothes. I mean, that sounds great. I just kind of wonder what the damage deposit will be for the undies. <laughs> just thinking out loud here. So anyway, apparently Grant Cardone you know, the real estate mogul, <clears throat> says that with raising interest rates and high home prices, and I would add in their high inflationary pressure and less than adequate employment and shrinking incomes and savings, yeah, we're going to start to have to look at longer mortgage rates. He said in a recent TikTok video, so I instantly don't like him, quote, the savior of America will not be lower prices. It will be longer mortgages. In your lifetime, you will see mortgages go from 30 to 40 50 and maybe even 60 years. You could, if you live long enough, see a 100-year mortgage in America. <laughs> I don't want to live that long, I'll be honest. How horrible does that sound? And where's the breakover point? 
I mean, I have a hard time believing the average family would be willing to sign a 50-year or longer mortgage. So at what point do we just say, look, you own it. I'll rent it from you. I will be happy not owning anything. <laughs> Thank you, sir. May I have another? And actually, Cardone agrees. He said that, quote, a mortgage is just a fancy way to say you own some poop that you don't own. And yeah, I mean, he's not wrong. I mean, the joke for the first few years of a mortgage, at least, is that, hey, I now own two square feet of this house or, you know, something like that. But we purchase because we're working to own it, to have it as our own, to be able to do with it what we want, because it's ours, to have privacy, to have autonomy, or whatever your reason is. He said, quote, America will become a renter nation. You will rent your cars, you will rent where you live, you might even rent your clothes in the future. <laughs> Sounds great, doesn't it? Then this article jumps into alternative ways to invest in real estate. If you still want to go down that road, if you really think it's wise, I don't know. I'm not going into that part. No, we're going to jump into another article also hosted on finance.yahoo.com. This one originally from gobankingrates.com. Headline, Kevin O'Leary, colon, expect a downsized America, how you can prepare. Now, you probably would recognize Kevin O'Leary. He's one of the investors on Shark Tank. He's the older white bald guy. That kind of narrows him right down there. Also in December for this article, O'Leary gave an interview on Fox Business and said that with interest rate hikes that are a necessity to try to rein in out of control inflation, he expects and he recommends that we just kind of resign ourselves to a downsized America. Now, I know that the central banks said that they weren't going to raise rates in 2024 and that they were looking at even cutting rates. And maybe they will. I don't know. But as we covered, the inflation is quite literally out of control. Now, they can report what they want, but the true inflation rate is devastating and wildly unsustainable. And the only way to pull that rate back is to raise interest rates. I see just a few days ago, the country of Turkey raised their interest rate to 45% because their inflation rate is currently sitting at 65%. If you think this country is immune to something like that, I mean, well, maybe not in the next few years, but trust me, we're not. Now, Argentina, less than 100 years ago, was one of the richest nations per capita. But from the 1950s to today, due to recessions and poor fiscal policy and massive debt, et cetera, et cetera, well, they hit an inflation rate of 200% in 2023. This is one of the reasons, maybe a main reason, that President Malay was elected. With 40% currently living in poverty, there's no question that that number will rise as he tries to untangle the financial nightmare that's become Argentina and shock the system back to a point where it could potentially revive given some time. Now, the might of the United States is not as mighty as we once were in any aspect. And we're well on our way to collapsing, just like Argentina, just like the Weimar Republic, just like Venezuela. Back to the article, after going through a number of data points regarding interest rates and, you know, stating the obvious, that consumers are being faced more and more with deciding how to spend their money and deciding if they want or need to take out a loan or a mortgage now, or maybe just try to wait out the interest rates, buy later. They finally get to O'Leary's thoughts, and he only has a couple of them. Bottom line, O'Leary says that if you're in your early 20s, just assume that your lifestyle will be about 20% less than what you expect. He says that you should resign yourself to a home about 20 to 25% smaller than what you may have purchased a few years ago due to higher prices and higher interest rates. Vehicles? Expect a smaller one, probably with less features. Which, to be honest, I'm not sure how you pull that one off since 
you know, we're supposed to go all electric and those things are really expensive to buy and really expensive to fix and they're not really cost effective at all per mile as compared to gasoline. And while you live in your smaller house and drive your smaller car, well, you'll need to be cutting your expenses down as well. This, my friends, is what we call prosperity. (laughs) Well, I mean the backside of prosperity, and I do mean backside. The average age of any empire is something like, what, 250 years before they either implode or get taken over, or both? Well, we're a couple years shy from that right now, right? I wonder if we'll make it. Now, this article does have some tips to prepare and... I'll say that if you're preparing now, (laughs) oof. I mean, it's hard enough to stay prepared to any degree these days. Starting to get prepared at this point, it's going to be tough, but it can be done. They recommend, number one, pay yourself first. Use automatic withdrawals to pay yourself 10% off the top. Now, I'm not really going to go into tithes and offerings here, but if you're a Christian, you should consider giving back to God first. That said, Know that giving is not mandatory, that the tithe, I'm very convinced, is not a mandate for us for today. So if you're legitimately struggling to make ends meet, and you'd like to give if you could, but you're already cutting to and maybe a little bit into the bone, God knows your heart. Just make sure you're honest with yourself about your finances. And that's number two, budget meticulously and track your expenses. You can't really know what you're doing and make any sort of progress if you don't track it. Now, there are apps, there are spreadsheets, there are notebooks. Look, whatever works for you, but do it. Budget what's coming in before it gets there and allocate it on paper before you spend any of it. And then stick to it. And I'll tell you, that's the hardest part. Number three, delay major purchases. If you can wait, wait. But again, you need to be honest with yourself about purchases that you either want or you need, right? And that's number four, prioritize essential items. One of the podcasts I listen to says that he has his own measure of economic pain in America. How many cars does he see pulled over on the side of the road as he drives somewhere? You know, a broken down car quite often denotes delayed maintenance, which is usually done for financial reasons. I used to work in the tire industry, and any time the economy would dip, well, so would sales figures, because people prioritize tires as low on their list of importance. And wow, are they not. You know, when you need tires, you need tires. Those should be prioritized higher. Overall, just make sure you're being honest and real about need versus want and what level of need versus what level of want we're talking about. And number five, this one may hurt a little bit. You may have to downsize your lifestyle. I mean, this is what O'Leary, this is what he was saying, right? This was his main point. You have the perfect this, the dream that, the certain thing you've convinced yourself you need, well, you may need to reevaluate your worldview. I mean, really think and decide what's important. And then number six, they recommend if you can invest in inflation-resistant assets like real estate or high-interest savings account or in your education. All right, maybe, I don't. The reality is, is that we can't continue as a country or a society the way that we've been going without repercussions. I remember when I took a new job and moved states and contacted a couple mortgage companies to get pre-approved for a mortgage. They took my info and they told me the amount that I was qualified for. I don't remember if I laughed out loud or if it was just in my head. Probably in my head, but um, no, 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 no. no. I, I was not going to be buying a house for that much. <laughs> I still wouldn't actually do that. And I'm in a much better position than I was back then. Not that I'm in any sort of worry-free spot financially now. I, I'm definitely not. But where I was then... Oh, it was not good. And they wanted to loan me just a ton of money for a house. 
with regard to our economy, our country, our future. Look, I don't know what's coming our way, but if I were to guess, I would say that O'Leary is on the right track at least. A downsized lifestyle, that could last for a few generations, or it could just last until we collapse. I don't know. Jesus told us, quote, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now look, I have no problem with stuff. I like stuff. I'll admit that. But I try to prioritize where my treasure is, and treasure in this case could refer to money. It could also refer to time or abilities. You're not actually going to deposit money in the First National Bank of Heaven, right? I mean, that's not what we're talking about here. Your money isn't really needed or worth anything there. I mean, shoot, it's barely worth anything here. So that means that you should use the monetary resources you've been blessed with here in a way that you can further God's kingdom. One of the easiest ways, of course, is to support your local church. Make sure you're in a good one, then support it financially, however you can. Remember, Giving is a matter of the heart, not a matter of a specific percentage, and not a matter of law. Now, beyond that, if you're able to give to other things, we'll look into parachurch ministries, look into charities, etc., etc. Vet them carefully, though. You want to make sure your money is actually going to help spread the gospel. You want to make sure that they're going to steward your money faithfully and wisely. You want to deposit your time in heaven, right? This has virtually limitless possibilities. You could work at your church, which everyone should be doing something at their local church to contribute, to be honest. You could visit with shut-ins. You could teach Sunday school. You could clean the sanctuary. You could use your time volunteering for a charity. You could do something in person or online. You could lead a Bible study at work. Uh, You don't have to be on your game every waking minute. That's not what we're saying here, but you can have leisure time. There's nothing wrong with watching the game or playing a game or reading a book or whatever, but we just want to be honest again with ourselves and evaluate carefully where we are depositing our time and our talents. We all have abilities given to us by God to use for God. Now, I'd argue that most people eh, just kind of let them waste away. There are a number of gifts of the Spirit, right? There's a number of physical, mental, and emotional abilities that we've all been blessed with that we could and should use for God's glory. So be in prayer, be in thought, talk to a friend or a pastor, an elder, and figure out how what you know how to do can be used for God. So we all have areas of our lives that we should really delve into to determine if we're using our time, abilities, and money wisely. It's always easiest, however, to look at the other guy and point out his waste, though, you know, in our opinion. Like, look, I'm not a yard work guy. Can't stand it. Bane of my existence. But what drives me absolutely crazy are people that spend hours upon hours meticulously trimming and pruning and preening and aerating and fertilizing and spraying and watering their lawn. I'm like, dude, surely you can spend your time better than that. And I could say that about all sorts of things that other people do. And... Yeah, I mean, also things that I do. That's one reason I make goals for the year. My theory is that if I'm going to accomplish these goals, which I apparently consider to be worthwhile, I'll have to not waste as much time playing games on my phone or mindlessly scrolling social media or watching all of my YouTube subs. Now, does it work? Well, yeah, I mean, to some extent it does. So although I know that what I consider to be important and not will be different from what you consider, but the point remains. 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, with all the economic mess in the country, maybe the financial turmoil in your own life, let's just make sure that our focus isn't on the earthly things that will all decay and deteriorate, that will break and disappoint us and frustrate us, that will always fail in the end. Let's make sure we put our hope in Christ and our resources in things at last. Quote, Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Serve the Lord Christ. Colossians 3.23-24 And remember, quote, Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. So as the world does what it does, be smart, be good stewards, work to take care of your family as we're called to do, but let's serve the Lord Christ. Let's work heartily as for the Lord, and heartily for the Lord, let's put in our time, talents, and treasures in the things that will actually last. A number of years ago, I came up with a design to fix a problem. Let's start there, shall we? So, many moons ago, I hired in with a company that I no longer work for, but shall remain nameless. They had a few reactors, and by reactor, I mean we're not talking nuclear here. We're talking about a large tank that has a long shaft on the inside that has multiple levels of propeller blades that are spun by a motor through a gearbox. That's called the agitator. That would mix the contents in the vessel, while some simple baffles on the sides of the inside of the tank would cause some extra turbulence to further enhance the mixing. And there were some instruments on there as well, probes and things for temperature and level, etc., etc. It's not really that complex, to be honest. Well, this shaft was fairly large in diameter, but that's because it had to reach from the top to the bottom of the tank, which was a fairly long distance. To make matters worse, the stuff it was mixing was thick enough that this shaft had to be constrained at the bottom of the vessel. This was originally done through a kind of Teflon-lined cup that the end of the shaft would sit in. This is called a steady bearing. Well, through the years, starting before my time there, they had redesigned this steady bearing a handful of times, but never really made anything better. In fact, well, they made it worse, actually, where we'd have to idle production more often in order to change the steady bearing as the Teflon wore out. So after I got there, a couple other guys and myself got to doing more redesigns, and we finally got this design refined to the point that it was more reliable and lasted longer than the original design. Plus, it was easier and safer to change when we had to do that. But there were still some issues with the slurry building up inside the cup, and it occasionally made some black flecks, which in a bright white final product was a major quality issue. So I set out to fix that. After playing with some designs on the computer, I finally came up with the idea of reversing the steady bearing. Instead of a cup, why not a post with a big Teflon bearing on the post and then hollow out the end of the shaft and make that the cup? Then the slurry wouldn't just be pooling up in there, and so we made a couple prototypes and we put one in service. We ran it for a short period of time, realized an issue, took it out, corrected the problem, started the trials again, and the black flecks were gone. Problem solved. However, as we trialed this new design for a longer period of time, we started getting some funny vibrations on the agitator. So we shut the reactor down and we opened up a manway and, well, we discovered that the Teflon was gone, as was the metal post. <laughs> it was completely ground and sheared off. That vibration, yeah, that was the, uh, was the agitator shaft, just spinning around, unrestrained and out of control, 
ripping the baffles off the inside of the tank and damaging a couple of the instrument tubes. This was right at the end of the year, where we were about to end the year with around $40,000 in surplus in the maintenance budget. Yeah, I completely wiped that surplus out. <laughs> we went back to the last known good design, which was also my design, just by the way, and we decided never to speak of this again. Well, at that time, we had a site leader who was a bit of a pain, one of those movers and shakers that would stab his own granny in the back in order to climb yet another rung. Well, he told the plant leader that I needed to be fired for this. But the plant leader reminded him that I followed something called the management of change process. This is something that most companies have. It's a simple process where whenever you make any sort of a change, you fill out whatever paperwork you use and throw all the pertinent materials into a review folder and send that change out for review by the experts in every field that you'll be affecting. The plant leader reminded our site leader that not only did I follow the process and everyone signed off on it, uh, but uh, the site leader, well, he was the final sign-off on the, on the change, saying that he approved what I was proposing. Now, I found this all out a couple years later, and I was told that the site leader just kind of stared at the plant leader, and then he just turned and walked away. My bacon officially saved. Now, I say all that to say this. I don't think our government, from President Potato on down to his National Highway and Transportation Agency or his Environmental Protection Agency or his Green Czar or what have you, I don't think any of them have ever heard of doing any sort of management of change process. And I'll say probably for anything, you know, just in general, but specifically for this major electric vehicle push. And it's just kind of cratering all around them, which is good. I'm actually happy about that. Now look, I know I've talked about electric vehicles in the past. <laughs> Sheesh, Dan. Frankly, we're tired of hearing about them. And, and yeah, I get it. But this is different this time, I promise. I want to play a little game of, uh, of Around the World with regard to articles that I've been setting to the side for a number of months now. And I want to just combine them together. I mean, it's proof positive that not only do vehicle manufacturers have no idea what's going on, but neither does the government, nor the media, nor, frankly, anyone making any of these decisions. Really, the only people that seem to have a clue are about uh, about 70% of the American drivers. And that number is actually growing as the EV early adopters, so-called, are calling it quits about as fast as they can on these rolling battery fires. So let's start here. From January 26th, so, you know, just the other day, found on Arkamax.com headline, New Tires Every 7,000 Miles? Electric Cars Save Gas, But Tire Wear Shocks Some Florida Drivers. Yeah, so I think it's clear that electric cars save gas. I mean, if you're using any gas driving your electric car, you're likely doing it terrifyingly wrong. That said, a study came out at the end of 2023 that said... If you were to calculate the cost of charging an EV and equate it to a gallon of gas, it would be the equivalent of $17 per gallon. Now look, I'm not in California, but to me, $17 per gallon seems high. In fact, I'm not a fan of the idea of paying five or six times my current cost of gas, you know, to, to allegedly save the planet at all, e even though all studies show that no matter what we do, we can't actually save the planet. But that's only if you believe the, the planet is, well, number one, in danger, and number two, needs saving. But I digress. So sure, I'll give them that. They save gas. Not money, mind you, just gas. Back to tires. So this article starts off with a nice little story of a man and wife who decided to save the planet 
bought a nearly new, only 2,200 miles, Mercedes electric vehicle. Mwah, perfect. But then in less than 5,000 miles, they needed tires. Now, asking a large EV garage in Miami, uh, they said that the general range seen on EV tires is about eight to 10,000 miles. According to Consumer Reports, as well as many others, you don't want to just put on any old tire on your EV. You need a tire that's designed for the EV, that can withstand the extra weight. You know, think about uh, 800 to 1,000 pounds heavier than a comparable internal combustion vehicle. You need to have tires that can handle the instant torque that an electric motor can deliver. And you want tires that offer less rolling resistance. If you want all of those dozens of miles of range between hours of charging, you know, you want to do anything you can to save a few electrons. Now, I never worked in tire design, but I did work for one of the top tire manufacturers in the world. And the, the combination of load capacity, low resistance, and good grip... Yeah, good luck designing tires like that. I mean, the resistance would be a harder compound of tire tread, right? The harder the compound, the less rolling resistance. But the grip requires a much softer, stickier tread. And load capacity is the tire's innards, really. It's more plies or it's more wraps with this strip of rubber that's either called the baz or the naz. It just depends on what the compound is. But to get the combo they're trying to get, I really don't know how they did it. The wear rate of the tires doesn't really surprise me, to be honest. Unfortunately, you're looking at probably 20 to 25% of the life of a set of tires on just about any car out there today, except for maybe a high-performance supercar. So if you drove a car for about 100,000 miles, a conventional vehicle would need one, maybe two sets of tires in addition to the tires it came with. An EV will apparently need nine to 12 sets of tires. But then the icing on top of the... Uh, shredded rubber, is that EV tires, well, they aren't cheap. I mean, no tires are cheap these days, but, but EV tires will run you in the neighborhood of, oh, $1,500 for a set of four, which for a normal car would buy you, I mean, just a really nice set of just premium skins. For an EV, you're going to get eight to 10,000 miles. So not only will you have to buy, oh, I don't know, let's say eight more sets of tires, you'll probably be paying close to double for those tires as well. <laughs> now, I'm not a, an automobile history aficionado, but I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong here, cars have used tires for a long time now. See, in a management of change or a, a customer requirement survey or, or a design review, you'd almost think that tires would have been discussed. From January 31st, found on the Associated Press via MSN.com, headline, Crash tests indicate nation's guardrail system can't handle heavy electric vehicles. So the University of Nebraska did some testing just recently. I'm sure people like John Kerry and Al Gore will try to have the entire state of Nebraska whacked for doing this, but, you know, too late. The data's out there now. So, you know, these steel guardrail type things that we see lining the sides of the roads, yeah, those are the things that stand between you and certain doom if you bust through and plunge down the, the sheer cliff face on the other side. I mean, don't tell me you've never thought of that. I'm not a nervous driver, like, at all. I'm a very good driver, in fact, even at my advanced age. I still have good reaction times, good awareness, etc. But come on, I can't tell you how often I've thought, if I hit that guardrail, I'm doomed. Uh, but no, for the, for the vehicles on the road today, if that guardrail system isn't already compromised, it's likely going to take the impact of your car and at least keep you from partaking of whatever's on the other side of it. Well... 
Quote, electric vehicles typically weigh 20 to 50 percent more than gas-powered vehicles thanks to batteries that can weigh almost as much as a small gas-powered car, and they have lower centers of gravity. Because of these differences, guardrails can do little to stop electric vehicles from pushing through the barriers typically made of steel. So they decided to test this. I don't think this was an extensive test. In fact, it may have only been the one vehicle. <laughs> these things are expensive. But they found that on a Rivian R1T, that's the, the Rivian pickup truck with those really weird-looking vertical oval headlight eye things, well, it's nearly 8,000 pounds, and that bulk, quote, tore through the metal guardrail and hardly slowed until hitting a concrete barrier yards away on the other side. They stated that the steel guardrail and the guardrail system, they aren't really made to handle more than a 5,000-pound vehicle. And the problem really isn't the weight. It's, it's the impact force from the momentum of all that weight. That's what these systems aren't going to be able to handle. And as we get more and more electric vehicles, we'll have more and more accidents with electric vehicles. I think you see where this is going. They also mentioned that the NTSB last year expressed concern about a very heavy EV hitting a lighter conventional vehicle. I'd also add, what happens if the large heavy EV hits another large heavy EV? That's, that's a huge amount of momentum coming together. See, if I were on the design team, safety of these vehicles with regard to the current systems in place, you know, that would have been flagged as an issue. You know, someone during the review of these changes from you know, real cars to electric vehicles should have said, uh, well, these are heavier, right? Like, like a lot heavier? Yeah, I got a few concerns. But no, I, I guess we just assume everything will be fine. It's steel, for crying out loud, right? I mean, steel is strong. For the next edition, our smorgasbord, let's go all the way back to April of 2023. You know, ancient history. Found on foxnews.com, headline, Electric vehicles may be too heavy for old parking garages, colon, report. Now, I vaguely remember the parking garage collapse in New York last April, but that was the basis of this article, shining a light on the infrastructure as previously designed versus the vehicle as currently designed and being forced onto the American population. The parking garage in question dates back to 1925. It was licensed as a garage in 1957 for five or more vehicles per floor and is currently, well, was currently licensed for 276 vehicles total. Now, this collapse was initially attributed to age and too many cars on the top level, but it caused a flurry of activity to inspect other parking decks, of which they found a handful that had issues large enough to shut them down until they could be repaired. This also continued a conversation that had already started. Can our infrastructure handle the added weight of electric vehicles? Remember, 20 to 50 percent heavier than their equivalent internal combustion engine car. A few examples here. The 2017 Chevy Sonic, a relatively small four-door hatchback. The most popular model, according to Edmunds.com, comes in at 2,850 pounds. The 2022 Chevy Bolt, a small four-door hatchback, an EV, and the most popular model out of that one weighs about 3,600 pounds. That's a greater than 25% increase in weight in the same amount of floor space. The 2021 Mercedes-Benz E-Class four-cylinder turbo four-door sedan weighs in at about 3,800 pounds. The 2023 Tesla Model S four-door sedan, EV, close to the same size, weighs about 4,600 pounds. That's a 21% increase in weight for slightly more floor space. Very slightly. 
the 2023 Ford F-150 XLT four-door SuperCrew four-wheel drive with the 5-liter V8. That weighs about 5,000 pounds. The 2023 Ford F-150 Lightning EV XLT four-door SuperCrew four-wheel drive weighs in at a minimum of 6,000 pounds. That's a 20% increase. According to AutoWeek.com, from 2017, it appears that the overall weight of cars, well, they haven't really changed that much in 50 years from 67 to 2017, but you have to look at their comparisons. So the 2017 Chevy Sonic RS takes up about 76 square feet of space, while the 1967 Chevy Chevelle 300 four-door sedan, essentially the same weight as the Sonic, took up 104 square feet. So the weight on the tires would be about the same, but with smaller cars, that weight that's about the same, well, that means that you can fit more of that weight into a given area, like a parking garage. And now with EVs and massive battery packs, we're talking about 20 to 50% more weight in the same space as the smaller car. In fact, comparing the 1967 Chevelle with the 2022 Chevy Bolt, we're going from an average of 28.4 pounds per square foot to 45.3 pounds per square foot. That's that's a 60% increase. And there are many examples as there are electric vehicles. Uh, are parking garages built to withstand 60% more weight? And that's not to mention the superchargers that by necessity will need to be installed all over inside the garage, plus the big electrical cabinets and all the cables. That's a lot of extra weight as well. A lot of copper uh, to be run. So, what does all this mean for parking garages? Oh, nothing much. I mean, just a number of limits, lowering the capacity of the garage or lowering the weight restrictions or whatever. It's very costly upgrades, maybe, to try to withstand the mass that they want to try and pile on these things. See, again, as someone who's done enough projects and recommended enough changes, it almost seems like the many, many different agencies, companies, organizations, regulating bodies, and just all the hands and eyes would have thought about things like parking, especially city parking, where EVs would probably be the most utilized. Ah, uh, but no. From over a year ago, so what did they know all the way back then? <laughs> Found on the drive.com headline, EVs are too heavy for current road weight limits, car haulers say. But again, what do car haulers know, right? I mean, they're just stupid truckers <laughs> who know exactly what they're doing and keep this country running. The byline of this article reads, quote, per a standard set in 1975, haulers are restricted to 80,000 pounds gross vehicle weight. The industry wants that upped to 88,000 pounds. So that's nice. So the 80,000 pound limit was set back in 1975 along with the Federal Bridge Gross Weight Formula. The purpose of this limit was safety on the roads for anyone driving and safety and reliability of the roads. And as of right now, every state has various fines for being overweight and serious fines or even jail time for, you know, fudged books. But now the car hauling industry, well, they want to raise the limit 10% to 88,000 pounds because we simply have to. Or we can't be hauling all of these electric vehicles. The article says that from 1975 to today, the average weight of a car has grown from 3,200 to 4,200 pounds. Now up the weight of those cars another 25%. The average car hauler today will trailer five to nine cars, depending on the size. But that number would be dropped to more like maybe three to seven. Upping the limit by 10% would get that potentially back up to five to nine. But again, that really depends on the cars that are being hauled. So the car haulers are looking at 
less product, meaning more trucks, more runs, and I'm not sure if their pay would be affected since they're hauling fewer units. And remember that 80,000 pounds is subject to the bridge gross weight formula. If you're too heavy for the bridge, you need to find a different way. But now cars in general are 20 to 50% heavier, so bridge loads would increase by, what, a third? If we were to go all electric? The bridges could handle it. Uh, most of them probably could. But their lifespan would be decreased for sure. So in 2020, Statista reported that there are over 45,000 structurally deficient bridges in the United States with 171.5 million daily crossings on those bridges. Were we to go all electric, the inspections, the calculations, the ratings would all have to be updated and lowered. But what about right now? Now, we don't need to probably worry about it right now as EVs only make up like, I don't know, what, 1% or so of the cars on the road? But are there plans in place and have the standards already been written for when there are 10% or 25 or 50% or more? Now, these standards and regs should be updated as milestones are reached, but will they be? And what does that mean for bridges and infrastructure, refurbishment costs for the states, for the roads, and the Fed? But that's hauling and parking and, I guess, bridging. What about just road driving? Yeah, found on EnergyCentral.com headline, EVs could strain roads and power grid. <laughs> what? The power grid? The heck you say? We'll just ignore that as that can't possibly be true. So, you know how y'all just love potholes? You know, busted up roads and big dips and all that road construction? We'll get ready for a lot more of it. According to this article, quote, One study found that electric vehicles place twice as much stress on roads as gas-powered cars, which could lead to a lot more potholes. Now, that's, that's only one study. But let's say that rather than uh, 100% more stress, it's only 25% more stress. What does that mean for the roads? Have they figured out how to design roads to account for this increase in weight? Do they have any magic materials or compounds that will help the states not have to spend just every last tax dollar on repairing potholes? Because the more you compress the roads, the more they flex, and the more cracks and pits appear, and then the more they crumble. The EVs will absolutely destroy our roads much faster. And to bring that home, think about your driveway and your garage floor as well. And let me just side note right here. After seeing some random articles and videos from the last few months, what about muddy roads and snowy roads and things like that? I mean, some may think that all oh, that extra weight means extra grip. And it, it definitely means something. It means extra momentum as you careen into the ditch. It means more resting weight as you sit in the ditch or in someone's muddy front yard, burying your massively heavy vehicle on street tires, which will require larger and larger tow trucks to... Uh, to try to wrench you out of what you've done to yourself. So I come back to my premise. Did any of these agencies at all that I've previously mentioned think about EVs with regard to driving on surfaces that currently exist on the planet? Because it seems like nobody did that. Maybe they just modeled it in, you know, the metaverse or something and assumed it'll just be fine. Maybe they assumed, like all climate nuts, that there wouldn't be any more snow and no more rain, just rock-hard, sun-baked earth. I'm not sure, but what I know is that apparently nobody thought about how these vehicles would need a place to drive. All right, so we've covered the apparent shock on the part of, well, I mean, pretty much everyone, that the typical EV consumer has the literal audacity to not just own, but drive the EV on roads and park it in places the absolute nerve of these people. And we started with the fact that tires would actually be needed. I mean, huh, 
Can it get any worse? Oh, and yes, yeah, actually it can. From October 2022, found on carandriver.com headline, Electric Car Maintenance, Everything You Need to Know. You heard that correctly, my friends. Literally everything that you'll need to know. You'll need to know nothing other than this about electric vehicles. Anyway, so let's get this wisdom rolling. We've got a handful of maintenance needs and tips for longevity, relatively simple common sense things. They start with the party line, quote, Electric motors have far fewer moving parts than internal combustion engines. This means electric cars often require far less maintenance and can be cheaper to operate than their gas-burning counterparts. <laughs> yes. Can. They won't be, but sure, let's go with uh, let's go with can. Starting with the battery. Because where else would we start, right? So the prediction prediction is that the batteries will last 12 to 15 years. Now, this is a prediction simply because of the fact that they have no idea because they didn't actually test these things long-term. You and I are actually the long-term testing guinea pigs here. Now, I know that they say 12 to 15 years, but what exactly does that mean? Because you and I both know that the battery life, the usable capacity, will not be the same at year zero as it is at year 12. I have a feeling that your and my definition of service life is much different from theirs. Oh, and a little caveat, it's more for moderate climates, really. If you use it in an extreme environment, you know, like if it's cold or or if it's hot, well, then that life is predicted, again, to drop uh, be- to between 8 and 12 years. But, you know, that's like a regular car, right? I mean, you need to replace the engine every 8 to 15 years in general, right? So if you want to extend your battery, quote, Steer clear of extreme temperatures, both hot and cold. <laughs> Thankfully, the manufacturers have thought of everything, though. They have auxiliary cooling and heating systems to regulate that battery temp. And this is kind of where I feel the need to break into this article with yet another article. Uh, this one from January 17th, found on Oklahoma's own news for KFOR.com. Headline, Why Letting EVs Warm Up in the Cold Can Backfire. Now, this story is actually out of Portland, Oregon, not Oklahoma, so they do actually deal with some pretty bitter cold up there, and nicely done with the backfire pun, (laughs) whether they intended to or not, I I don't know, you know, because backfire is a combustion engine thing, not an EV thing. Anyway, apparently AAA did a study on a variety of EVs in severe weather, and they found that temps below 20 degrees F, and where on this planet or in this country would you... You find temperatures that bitterly cold. Well, that could reduce your range by 41%. And the cause of the problem? Yeah, the, the cabin heater. You know, if, if you want to heat your car, well, be prepared to stop twice as often to, to charge that sucker up. That's okay, though. They've got some pro tips for you for the cold weather EV drivers. First, warm up the interior of the car while it's charging. Because... I'm assuming that's free heat, and it definitely won't extend your charging time, you know, approximately infinity hours. Second, how about just building in more stops for charging? I mean, you're going to do that whether you want to or not. It's more of a survival tip, not really a pro tip, but they they gave that as a tip. Uh, Next, you could just keep that bad boy in the garage, which allows more stable temperatures. Of course, I I don't know how many EV manufacturers have, have cautioned you to not park in the garage. You know, if you want to keep your house in its current not-burned-to-the-ground status, not to mention various parking garages have outlawed EVs since they don't have the systems in place to, you know, put out the massively hot battery fires. It Probably my favorite tip of them all, just don't heat the car! 
They found that in cold weather, by not heating the inside of the car, where where the humans generally are, they only lost 12% of their range. Practically problem solved right there, my friends. Although they do caution you that, quote, in dangerously cold weather, leaving the heater off isn't an option. And as you watch your range drop like a rock as you desperately search for a charger that works and doesn't have a dozen other people waiting for it, you probably need to tell your car's navigation that you're you're heading to a charger, so it can use more power in order to precondition the battery to allow it to accept a charge a little faster in the extreme cold. So I gotta ask, did, did any of these people pushing the EVs ever think that people might use these suckers in the cold? Because it really seems like they didn't do that either. Let's get back to our maintenance article. Let's learn some more. <laughs> I'm excited. Okay, so we're changing tires every 7,000 miles or so. We're openly refusing to live in cold temperatures or hot. Now we need to stop thinking we're going to just use fast charging all the time. I mean, what kind of crazy person are you? For that matter, what kinds of crazy people are there? Anyway, the fact is fast charging breaks down the battery packs faster than slower charging, like what you'd be doing at home on a 120 or 240 volt charging system. Quote, just how much fast charging impacts battery life isn't known precisely in these relatively early days of modern EVs, right? But we must all buy these modern EVs, right? To save the something, it doesn't. Car and driver admits that when you take a road trip, you'll likely need to use the superchargers, but you just don't want to do that all the time because not only is it harder on the battery, well, it's also three to four times more expensive to do that. And while we're speaking of charging, do not fully deplete or fully charge the battery. Again, like some crazy nut. The batteries just aren't made to, to charge all the way up or discharge all the way down. It's just like your gas tank in your other car, right? I mean, if you fill it all the way up, you... but, but if you drain it dry, I mean, the car will never start and run again, ever, until you replace the entire fuel system. No, that's... That's silly. I'm being silly. But I have read a few stories that say if you drain your EV battery all the way to zero, uh, it will not charge again. You have to replace that $15,000 paperweight now because you screwed up. So for the love of all that's, that's maybe good and true, don't use all of your electrons and only charge it up to about a recommended 85%, maybe 90 at the most. So I guess what we've learned here is that if you decide to actually <laughs> heat your car in the cold and you don't use all the electrons, and you don't charge it up all the way, you'll have, what, about 8% of the claim range? You might be able to, to pull that bad boy around the block and come right back to the charger, but keep your foot out of it or you won't make it. And unless you got a busload of professional football players handy, you're not going to push that lead sled anywhere. Okay, so now we're well-versed on how to maintain the vehicle, something that Clearly, nobody ever thought of prior to, you know, designing and building and selling and forcing them on the public at large or the large public. But what happens if you have an accident with one of these things? We're talking about an accident where it doesn't result in your nice, shiny vehicle turning into a melted puddle of destroyed asphalt. Well, here's the thing. I would suggest, first of all, don't. Don't get in an accident. From what I'm reading, you don't don't do that. From December 2023, originally on the Wall Street Journal, via msn.com, headline, Why Repairing Your EV Is So Expensive. Now they start with a fun little anecdote about someone that we'll call Scott McFiggin. We're going to call him that because that's his name. He drives a nice Rivian R1T pick-em-up truck. He had a 
quote, dent the size of a bowling ball under a rear tail lamp. About two and a half months later, in $22,000, that dent was fixed up real nice. <laughs> yeah, I, I said $22,000. I didn't, that's not a mistake. A study by CCC Intelligent Solutions, whoever that is, found that in 2022, the average cost of repairing an EV was over $6,500 as compared to $4,200 for all cars. That's over 50% more to repair an EV, and I, I gotta wonder what you'd see if you compared identical jobs, what would you actually find? Because I bet the difference is way more than that. Now, they say that this is quite simply because, quote, the fixes tend to require more replacement parts. Huh. The vehicles are more complicated and fewer people do such repairs. Now, they add that some of this price pressure will likely ease over time. That's nice. But, quote, first-time electric owners may be startled by the higher costs and longer wait times. So here's the thing. The instant explosive diarrhea from being told my dent would cost me $22,000, I find that hard to believe that that would be classified as startled. I don't even think that whoever was standing behind me at line at the repair shop at that exact moment would be classified as only startled. But lest we panic, the Wall Street Journal gives us a shiny, happy wake-up call that clearly we're not thinking of. Quote, the increased costs following collisions contrast with the maintenance savings that dealers and automakers promote when trying to get buyers to switch to electric cars and trucks. In addition to not needing gas, EVs tend to require less upkeep, not needing to do regular chores like oil changes and engine tune-ups or replacement of timing belts means that electric vehicle owners spend half as much maintaining their vehicles as their gasoline-owning counterparts, according to Consumer Reports, a non-profit consumer organization. So I'm a gasoline vehicle owner. Let's take a quick look at their list of savings. And not needing gas. Are we still under the delusion that electricity is free? I, I, I thought... I thought maybe we moved, I don't know. Didn't we just say that charging in some cases is at least the equivalent of $17 per gallon of gas or that fast charging is three to four times the cost of charging at home? What about oil changes? Oh, look, I have a small fleet of vehicles myself. A few I do my own oil changes and, and other fluids. A few I take to the dealer because, well, to be honest, it's quicker and it's easier. And I'm looking at about 100 bucks to do it and they check all sorts of things and I only do it maybe twice a year. So that's $200. Engine tune-ups. I'm not sure what decade this report came from, but not only do you simply not tune up an engine anymore, you don't need to, nor can you. Now, you can get the right computer and you can tune an engine, but that's not the same thing. Savings per year on that one, nothing. And replacement of timing belts. Okay, all right, there's only a few manufacturers that still actually use timing belts, right? You may have to replace those things maybe once every say, three to five years, maybe? And maybe a couple thousand dollars to do the work, possibly? So you're looking at maybe an average savings of, and I'll be really generous here, a thousand dollars annually. Now, for those with timing chains, you simply don't need to replace them. I mean, yeah, if you had the car long enough, you might have to do some work there. But, but no, for most of us, we'll never need to replace a timing chain. Now, if they're talking about the accessory belts, again, you're looking at maybe every three to five years, and if you bring it in to get it changed, it might run you a couple hundred dollars to do it. So maybe 50 to $75 per year in savings. All in all, how many years would you have to drive your Rivian R1T 
to make up for a $22,000 dent repair bill. And although I have a handful more articles to cover, let's just do one more and wrap up this flaming car wreck. If you thought dinging the fender of an EV was bad, and it is, well, found on the drive.com from March of 2023 headline, lots of crashed EVs with minor battery damage are being totaled. Now, keep in mind that the battery costs can be as much as half the cost of the vehicle, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to replace, and there aren't very many shops that know how to or will even attempt to repair or replace a battery. And the life of the battery is the key to saving the planet with the EVs. See, the batteries are not green to produce. They're not green to dispose of or recycle. The only thing that can be claimed to be green is that they're electric, you know, not using fossil fuels. But, I mean, they're actually charged with fossil fuels primarily. But bottom line, you need to drive what I've seen calculated as your EV for 7 to 10 years to actually come out more friendly to the environment than just driving a real car. If these things are getting totaled, meaning they're headed for the scrapyard or they're getting auctioned, which would mean they would have to get the battery repaired or replaced before they can be sold in a, as a, with a salvage title, well, then they're not green. In fact, they're actually coming out worse for the environment. So why aren't these things just repaired? Well, because of the way they're constructed. Minor damage isn't minor. It's, it's not like swapping out a AA battery or something. These batteries are sealed electrical systems. I'm sure that... If you found the right guy, you might be able to get most of them repaired. But by the time you repair one, you might as well buy a new battery. I mean, a $15,000 plus battery is probably going to be about the same cost as repairing these things. Now, all of these issues have now combined. And what a lot of us have been saying for a long time now has finally been realized. Found on the Telegraph via MSN.com from January 2024 headline, Electric cars suffer unsustainable depreciation in a secondhand market. If we go all or even heavily electric, the used car market, especially the affordable hoopty market, well, that's going to be gone. After three years on the road, EVs are seeing depreciation of 50% of their value. Nobody wants these things because the battery's already not as good as new. And who knows how many more miles or kilometers or years it has left on it before it starts to fail. And as more and more of these used EVs flood the market and gets sent directly to the crusher, the supply of used real cars will dwindle, so the price, you know, supply and demand, that's going to skyrocket. So what have we learned today? We've learned first that cars use tires. Next, the heavier the car, the more damage it can do. Hmm. Uh, cars have to drive on and park on various surfaces. Uh, here's a brain buster for you. EVs use electricity. Next, batteries don't really like the really cold or the really hot. You probably never thought of this, but batteries need to be charged. And people would like them charged rapidly and would like to use all of their battery, not, not just some. How about this one? EVs might be involved in accidents. Uh, next, EV batteries might be involved in EV accidents. And finally, an EV owner may want to resell their EV at some point. Every year, it seems more and more like auto manufacturers have no idea what they're doing. Like, they've never even thought through what makes a car and what a car should do. And the number of recalls, the number of boneheaded designs, the total lack of awareness is more and more staggering with each new model. It seems like with EVs, they didn't even think about customer requirements or typical usage or even the drivability of these things. They were focused on connecting a big battery to a couple motors and slapping a lot of computers on top of it. So, I know that there are two different camps. Christianity with regard to planning for the future. 
this is where we're going to wind this thing up here. The first camp says that if you're planning, you're clearly not placing your faith in God because doesn't Jesus tell us not to worry? Look at the birds. Look at the lilies of the field. Won't God take even more care of you? You who have little faith, God will take care of your food and your drink and your clothes. Don't you worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. But Jesus is not saying just to, you know, let go and let God. We're not to just throw our hands up and sing, Jesus, take the wheel. This section follows Jesus' discourse on not storing up treasures on earth and directly follows the warning that a man cannot serve two masters, both God and money. Furthermore, Jesus wasn't telling us not to plan. He was telling us not to worry. If we focus our lives on making money and saving money and making more money so we can be secure in our old age or or our young age or whatever, and we're doing this because we're terrified of the future, we're doing this in a way that we've left God out of the equation, or we've ignored God, we've shoved him in the corner as we make our fat stacks of mad cash, well, we're doing it dramatically, woefully, and eternally, potentially, wrong. But Jesus also said, as captured in Luke, quote, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Lest, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, Well, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else... While the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Now, Jesus was clearly speaking of what it would take to be his disciple. We need to clearly understand what it can and does mean to truly follow him. However, inside of that are some obvious facts. Plan, strategize, fully understand what you're getting into before you undertake it. Proverbs tells us, quote, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. How much is Ford losing on every lightning, like $35,000 per truck? Same with Rivian. Also in Proverbs, quote, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. And also, quote, prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. See, I've been reading in Numbers as part of my daily reading. After the tabernacle was built, the Levites set apart for service to God. They were to camp around the tabernacle to ensure nobody would just wander too close and be struck dead. Then, on each side, three of the tribes of Israel would camp in a specific order, from the closest to the farthest away from the tabernacle. Now, when they set out, the Levites and all the parts and pieces of the tabernacle, as well as the holy objects, were to travel in the middle of the migration. So, six tribes in front, six in back, and the Levites in the middle. But in Numbers 10, we actually get a little bit more information, a little more specifics here. When the cloud of God lifted from covering the tabernacle and moved, the Israelites were to follow. So, the three tribes encamped on the east side would set out first. Then two clans of the Levite tribe, the Gershonites and the Merorites, they took down the coverings, the veils, etc., and the pillars, the boards, the stands, and all that stuff of the tabernacle, basically the building, and they set out. Then the three tribes camped on the south side of it. They go next. Then the last clan of the Levite tribe, the Kohathites, well, they move out carrying all the holy objects. Then the three tribes on the west, and then the three tribes on the north who acted as the rear guard. Now, this was done for two reasons. One was to offer the most protection to the holy objects, like the ark, and the table, and the laver, the altars, etc. The other reason is told to us in verse 21, quote, Then the Kohathites set out, carrying the holy objects, and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. 
See, this way, the holy objects didn't have to be carried around unprotected, likewise the, the people unprotected from a chance encounter, and the mercy seat could be placed immediately back inside the Holy of Holies. This was a plan. There was no chaos. There was no hoping, no confusion. This was very carefully planned. What we're seeing with the green agenda, in this case regarding EVs, is a total disconnect from God, a belief that God doesn't exist, only man. And because of that, we see that God has turned or is turning man over to a depraved mind, to a foolish mind. When we disconnect from God, everything starts to fall away, including, it appears, our reasoning and planning skills and basic logic. As Christians, let me appeal to you and to myself as well to not be caught laying out foundations without calculating the cost of the dream tower that we want to build and be caught with a partially built tower and a street full of hecklers. Let's show the world that we believe what we say when we say the Bible has everything we need in this life. Let's not worry about tomorrow. Let's not chase and worship the almighty dollar. Let's not follow vain pursuits. Let's show the world that in all things, God's way is not only the best way, but the only way. All right, let's be Bereans. So this will be a new segment every three or four weeks covering questions I've asked and observations I've made during my Bible study time. Last year, this was part of my goal update segment, but in an effort to cover a lot of the same stuff, but do it in a more, on a smaller bite-sized chunks, I've decided to try spinning this off as its own segment. So welcome to Let's Be Bereans Chapter 1. I won't promise that all of my thoughts and questions are correct. This is kind of a brainstorming, train of thought kind of session as I dig through the Bible. Now, I believe the Bible to be inerrant and infallible. God breathed, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I believe that the depth of the Bible is limitless, but I believe that many applications can be taken from the scriptures and that there are parts that are easier to understand and parts that are more difficult. And as such, I believe that there are some parts that are somewhat open for interpretation. That said, I believe that regardless of how many interpretations there are floating around out there, there's only one correct interpretation of everything in the Bible. As such, either one of our existing views is correct, or none of them are, and we have yet to figure it out. In no way can multiple conflicting interpretations all be correct. Now, I also believe, most importantly, that the gospel is true and can be discerned and understood through the plain reading of the text. A little background. Although I'm rapidly nearing half a century on this planet— I can't believe that. And I grew up in the church my entire life. I'm sad to say that up until about 12 years ago, I was kind of content with just knowing the Bible. It was actually my taking over of the elementary Sunday school class that started me down a road of actually wanting to do some digging. I was so dissatisfied with the content and the depth of the supplied material. I mean, I was teaching boring stuff to bored kids. So I started working to bring the lessons to life, not changing or adding anything, just teaching at a deeper level. Hey, look, kids are smart. Way too often we teach down to them. We need to teach up and inspire them to reach. And then about six and a half years ago, July 2017 to be exact, I attended my first Answers for Pastors conference at the Creation Museum. I wasn't then, nor am I now a pastor, but they let me in anyway. They were covering world religions and cults. And the depth of that teaching made me want to learn more. Now, coming out of there, over the course of a few months, I was able to work my way through to rock-solid expositors of the Bible, not the typical rock concert TED Talk format, not the amazing revelation and application that absolutely nobody's ever heard of before, not the shallow teaching that's found in 
way too many of our churches today. No, I mean, this this was deep. It was historical. It was insightful. I guess if I had to sum it up in a word, it was biblical. So I started to understand that there is way more out there than I had been taught or maybe chosen to learn in the past. And that's why we're here today. As a reliability engineer trained in multiple forms of root cause analysis with an analytical mind, I tend to ask why. That combined with a desire to know the Bible as rightly as I possibly can, it makes me question just about anything, right? And I want to connect the dots. I, I'm striving to understand the interconnectedness throughout the scriptures. So, in this segment, my plan is to just kind of throw out there what amounts to a bullet point list of stuff I've encountered in my reading. These might be questions. These might be revelations, at least to me. These might be connections or information that I had just never known or realized before. You may roll your eyes and say, duh, Dan, everyone knows that. And that's fine. You may shake your head and say, come on, Dan, that's ridiculous. And that's fine as well. I know that interacting with a podcaster, unless the podcast is huge, is generally not done. But if you have questions, if you have answers to questions, if you have a different viewpoint or whatever, you can comment back on the episode or you can just email me. And let's strive together, right? Iron sharpening iron to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Did I mix in enough Bible phrases there? Quench not the spirit. Sorry, I'll stop. Okay, obviously this segment will be a little bit longer since I haven't uh, gone over what I've been reading for quite a while, and because of this excessively long intro, in the future these segments should be much shorter. But let's start here. I use blueletterbible.org for a lot of Bible word searches as well as the Greek and the Hebrew interliners. So just a, a moment ago, I was looking up the phrase strive together because I was pretty sure that I remember seeing that in a few verses in the Bible. The default translation in Blue Letter Bible is KJV. I was correct that there were a few verses with the phrase strive together. Two of them come from Deuteronomy with God giving the law to Moses. Deuteronomy 25.11 is the infamous verse that says if two men strive together or fight and the wife of one of them comes up and grabs the other man by the... And depending on the translation, it says genitals, testicles, private parts, then her hand is to be cut off. But the King James Version reads it this way, quote, When men strive together, one with another, and the wife of the one draweth near, for to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smiteth him, and putteth forth her hand, and taketh him by the secrets. And I just thought you should know this, and also that from now on, those things are now going to be called the secrets. What's wrong, Dan? I just got kicked in the secrets. Okay, that was just a little bonus for you there. See what you can find when you do a little digging? Probably not the best example, but uh, let's see if I can do better. All right. Exodus 23, verses 14 to 19. We find what's been given the header of judgment about national feasts. God is telling Moses that there will be three annual feasts celebrated for God. Those feasts are the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the Harvest or First Fruits, and the Feast of the Ingathering. During these feasts, all the males shall appear before the Lord Yahweh. Then verses 18 to 19 say, and Remember, this is God speaking, quote, You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the fat of my feast to remain overnight until morning. You shall bring the choice first fruits of your ground into the house of Yahweh your God. You shall not boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. Now, verse 20 continues with God speaking, but it's a total change of direction. It starts, quote, Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to keep you along the way, and so on and so on. 
So what in the world is meant by not boiling a young goat in the milk of its mother? What does that mean? And more curiously, knowing that God isn't a, oh man, I almost forgot, or hey, I meant to mention, you know, type of God, why does this phrase appear in the specific location where it just doesn't seem to make sense? What are we missing? So I found an article by Christy Jordan, no idea who that is, on a website called SeekingScripture.com. Again, no idea who that is. The article is entitled, Do Not Boil a Young Goat in Its Mother's Milk, colon, Another Possibility. She starts out with what I think a lot of us have likely heard, at least generally speaking, that this was a pagan ritual or a pagan God-worshipping celebration or something like that. But the location in the Bible is really odd, so she did some more digging. What she found is that a Bible Research Institute published a 44-page research paper that covered a number of theories as to what this actually means. The author narrows it down to the two most common and then the theory that she believes to be the most plausible. And I'll be honest, without doing my own research paper, I think I'd be likely to agree with her. So theory one is the Canaanite God-Pagan ritual thing, right? You'll find this footnoted in Bibles and you'll find it mentioned in commentaries. Theory two is that this is a veiled statement on how we should respect nature, but that doesn't really fit with the context. And God was very straightforward and blunt while handing Moses the law. It seems odd that he'd throw in some sort of vague reference if that's what he actually meant. And that brings us to theory number three. What if this was just an idiom, just a commonly used phrase at that time that we don't understand today, and we've taken it as literal, and we really shouldn't have? She gives some examples of idioms that we have today that will likely make absolutely no sense to people in a few hundred years or a few thousand years. She cites flash in the pan, which we all know has to do with frying something like bacon on the stove, except no, it doesn't. It actually refers to a misfire in the gunpowder pan of a flintlock pistol. What about ride your hog? Now, a lot of us know that's talking about a Harley Davidson motorcycle, but in a few hundred years, who's going to know that? They'll think we were actually riding large pigs to places. Now, at this point, she does something crazy, and she looks at the context. Now, I know we don't like to do that with our Bible verses. That's why we know for sure that God knows the plans he has for us, plans to prosper us and not to harm us, to give us hope in a future and make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. Oh, my. But despite our aversion, she goes there anyway. So there are three locations in the Old Testament where this phrase is used. Exodus 23, 19 and Exodus 34, 26 both say, quote, The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And then Deuteronomy 14.21-22 says, quote, You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns, that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. Now, in all three cases, this phrase is associated with first fruits. In the two verses in Exodus, first fruits are mentioned first, and then the phrase. In the Deuteronomy verse, the tithe was to be taken from what was gleaned that year, which was to be the first fruits of the harvest. The logical speculation is that the Israelites, while under captivity, were likely forced to give offerings to pagan gods of their masters and might have been trying to shortchange the offering or give some old nasty grain or whatever as offerings. But that's not what first fruits are. So that's not what God requires. He requires the best of the best, off the top, without blemish. So the thought is that this was an idiom about mixing the old 
with the new. They were free now. They were worshiping the one true God. Do not try to mix old grain, your old harvest, or the mother's milk, in with the new harvest, the baby goat. When you look at these verses in context, now they make sense. And it makes sense why this odd phrase is in the location it is. Quote, paraphrased, The best of your first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not offer a mix of the old harvest with the new harvest. Okay. A lot of time spent on that one. Let's move on and see if I can cover some of my uh, other thoughts, findings, curiosities, whatever, a little more quickly. At the end of the same chapter, Exodus 20, God promises a list of what he'll do for his chosen people if they obey his commands. First, he'll fight for them. He'll drive out and utterly destroy their enemies. Second, he will bless their bread and water. That sounds nice. Third, he will remove sickness. Could use that right now. Fourth, he will remove the possibility of miscarriage. Fifth, he will slowly drive out the enemies currently in the promised land so Israel could grow into it and take it over. And as we know, the Israelites agreed to this. The covenant was cut, and it didn't take long before the Israelites reneged on the deal. But lest we shake our heads in disbelief, we would do and haven't done any better. Right? I just found the list of promises astounding. We would consider a group of people like this under that kind of protection as almost superheroes or something, right? They're, they're untouchable. All right, jumping to Exodus 31, God tells Moses that he is called by name Bezalel and Aholiab to be the master craftsman over the construction of the tabernacle and the creation of all the fabrics and the coverings, the creation of the holy objects, etc., etc. Now, we're not told much about Aholiab, just that he was the son of, oh man, Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, probably the bestly named tribe of them all. But Bezalel, we know more about him. He's the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. When we look at the genealogy, we find that Bezalel goes to Uri, to Hur, to Caleb, to Herzon, to Perez, to Judah. Judah is the tribe that David came from, and the tribe that both Joseph and Mary came from, and thus Jesus. But the line of David follows Ram, the son of Herzon, while Bezalel followed the line of Caleb, another son of Herzon. Both lines, however, come from the line of Judah's son, Perez, who was one of the twins that Judah fathered with Tamar. Now, Tamar may sound familiar to you. Tamar was the woman Judah had chosen as a wife for his son, Ur. But Ur, as we're told in Genesis 38, was evil in the sight of Yahweh, so Yahweh put him to death. So although Leverite marriage wasn't codified into law until the book of Deuteronomy, we see the principles here. Since Ur did not give Tamar a son, Tamar was then given Judah's next son, Onan. But Onan didn't want to do that, didn't want to give her a child, so he used, keeping this PG, a method, shall we say, so as to not impregnate Tamar. And since he didn't fulfill his duty, God was displeased, and killed him also. So this left Judah's son, Shelah, but he wasn't old enough to marry her yet. So Judah sent Tamar back to her father's house until Shelah got older. But Judah decided he didn't want his last son to die as well, and seeing a pattern emerge, Judah just kind of, you know, neglected to give Shelah to Tamar, or Tamar to Shelah, or however that worked. A considerable time passed. Judah's wife died. He went on a journey to another town. Tamar found out he was going, dressed herself, and stationed herself as a prostitute at the gate of a city on the way to where Judah was heading. Well, Judah, not recognizing her, decided he needed to get some of that, and he apparently didn't have any money, so he made some promises. 
just like a man, right? And gave her a few things to hang on to until he made good. Well, time passed. Tamar was obviously pregnant, and Judah decided that she needed to be killed for getting knocked up until she presented him with his items that he gave her to hold on to, and he realized that, uh, <laughs> that, that was that was her on the road. Now, Perez was one of Tamar and Judah's twins. We're always told that God doesn't call those we'd expect for him to call, that he doesn't use those that have everything going for them, that he just uses ordinary, broken, sinful humanity and redeems them for himself. And with this story, with so many twists and turns, and what would typically be found on an afternoon soap opera, is what God used to bring about David and ultimately Jesus. Moving to Exodus 36, verse 21, we see that the boards used to construct the tabernacle were 10 cubits long, one and a half cubits wide. These were made of acacia wood, and in our modern measurement system, we'd equate them to 18 feet long by 27 inches or 2 feet 3 inches wide. Those are huge boards, and since they were for the tabernacle, they had to be flawless. And I only bring this up because it'll take me two hours at Home Depot or Lowe's or Menards or whatever to find a half dozen semi-usable 8-foot 2x4s. This is very clearly, very clearly, part of the curse of sin. In Exodus 38, we hear about all the donations that were made to build the tabernacle. So many, in fact, that the people had to be told to stop bringing donations. They didn't have anywhere to put the supplies anymore. So, just looking at the metals, the totals in our modern weights are 2,200 pounds of gold, 7,550 pounds of silver, and about 5,850 pounds of bronze. Current metal prices would put those metals at a value of about $75 million. And that's not taking into consideration the fabrics, the skins, the wood, the labor, etc. For reference, I looked up a few things. The Crystal Cathedral, a massively ornate glass I guess church, whatever, 78,000 square feet in size, cost about $18 million to build when it finished in 1981. With inflation, that would be about $63 million today. Then in 2019, the Catholic Church bought it and spent about $77 million in renovations. Another church, considered to be one of the most ornate, most magnificent churches in the United States, the Cathedral Basilica of St. Louis, in St. Louis, Missouri, obviously, was built in 1918 for three million, or at least finished then, which would be about 92 million in today's dollars. Those are both massive in length and width and height type of structures. The tabernacle was a big tent and a courtyard when you come right down to it. The size of the tabernacle proper, the actual tent part, was about 15 feet wide by about 30 feet long or 450 square feet. And the entire courtyard was about 75 feet by about 150 feet, which is approximately 11,250 square feet. That should give you some idea of how spectacular this tabernacle was with all of the precious metals and stones and wood and everything all poured into an area that small. And then that's the end of Exodus in my daily reading. But before we finish up this segment, I want to hit one more thing that's confused just theologians forever. This is in my in-depth reading portion. So going back to Genesis 9, we're now past the flood. The cruise ark has disembarked the passengers, unloaded the steerage. Noah became a farmer and planted a vineyard. And then we get the story where he made wine from the grapes, got drunk, and was having some passed out naked time in his tent. I've seen the same thing in the bathroom of my dorm building in college. I wasn't happy about it. 
But Ham went in, then came out and told Shem and Japheth, who then went in backwards and covered their father. After a while, Noah woke up, somehow knew what Ham had done, then cursed Ham's son, Canaan. So a few things I've always just kind of thought. First, Noah got shwasted, but come on, he just got off the boat. He was stressed, he was tired, he enjoyed a little too much of the grape. Can we really fault him? Second, Ham had to have done something to Noah. Did he do something sexually to him? Did he do something mocking to him? Third, Ham was cursed because Noah found out. There are some people, generally racist people, who believe the curse of Ham was dark skin. You know, that's where the blacks came from, from a cursed branch of humanity. I mean, I can't possibly stress enough how stupid you have to be to believe that. And yes, if you believe that to be true, I'm calling you stupid. Or, at the very least, incredibly ignorant. There's nothing anywhere that could possibly be pointed to to back up an idea like that. Learn. Don't be ignorant. But let's go back to Noah the wino. This was not right after he got off the ark. I looked uh, I looked up online how long it would take to make the wine, starting from planting a vineyard. There realistically could have been five years between getting off the ark and Noah getting schnockered. And I say that because the Bible specifically says that Noah became a farmer, then planted a vineyard, then made the wine. Not that he had wine on the ark, or he had grapes or whatever on the ark. The implication is clearly that he started from seeds. So Noah wasn't necessarily stressed from the past year. Now, he might have been stressed for other reasons, or he might have just been feeling good. Then gooder, and then the goodest, then he passed out. And it kind of makes you wonder at what point in that progression the clothes came off and why. <clears throat> but I theologically digress. Now, Canaan wasn't born until after they came to rest. There was no ham sweeping his wife up in his arms while on the ark, heading to his cabin, telling the family over his shoulder, if this ark's a rockin', don't come a knockin'. And yes, I know, I'm really walking a fine line between comedy and lightning bolts right now. <clears throat> I'm not sure how long after they got off the ark before Noah planted the vineyard, but Canaan had to have been less than 10 years old at this time. And the Bible only tells us that Ham saw the nakedness of his father. That implies that he did nothing. Canaan did nothing, as he's not even mentioned in that part of the story. And the other two boys came in backwards to cover up their father so as to not see him. This, to me, says that Ham was guilty of maybe violating Noah's tent or something like that. And that was it. So why did Noah curse Canaan and not Ham? Growing up. I always thought it was the one who did it was the one who was cursed. That would have been Ham. But no, Noah cursed Canaan. After doing some pondering on this, the only thing that makes sense to me is that Noah couldn't or wouldn't curse Ham because Yahweh God had blessed him. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you, as with the green plant I give all to you. However, flesh with its life, that is its blood, you shall not eat. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every living thing I will require it. And from every man, from each man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, warm on the earth and multiply it. So, this was a blessing of God to Noah and his sons. 
Now, later in Numbers 23, we run up on the story of Balaam and Balak and the talking donkey. And Balak, the king of the Moabites, wanted Balaam to curse the Israelites so he could defeat them. Balaam, of course, was told by God eventually, okay, go to Balak, but only say what you're allowed to say. So Balaam gets there. Balak rubs his hands together, awaiting just the cursiest curse of all of them. And Balaam ends up blessing the Israelites because that's what God allowed him to do. Balak, incredulous, asked him what he thought he was doing. And Balak replies, quote, How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom Yahweh has not denounced? Now, if I had to make a logical guess, Canaan was cursed because Noah, for whatever reason, wanted or needed to severely punish Ham. But since God blessed Ham, Noah couldn't curse him. So he did the next best possible thing, and he cursed the son of Ham. And I guess with that, I'll let you chew on everything we've covered here today. Like I said, let me know what you think. Let me know where I'm wrong or where I missed something or whatever. Now, in the future, these segments should not run as long. Uh, as with my goal update last week, we had some background legwork to do first. All right. So get up, get off your duff, and go be a Berean. And with that, sadly, we've reached the end of yet another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. I feel we've bonded as we've laughed and cried and twisted our faces in incredulity. If you've enjoyed or found value in what you've heard, go on and do all the podcast things. And don't forget to check the show notes for links and contact info. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.